It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vecini. We are presented by The Athletic. We had a great day of NBA playoff basketball, so I wanted to come join you guys to break down some of the fun stuff that we saw throughout the day. We saw the Brooklyn Nets get eliminated by the Philadelphia 76ers in a Tobias Harris-Paul Reed show that I'm sure my colleague John Hollinger thoroughly enjoyed. Then we saw a Suns-Clippers game that turned back the clock for Russell Westbrook in a really exciting, interesting way that I loved to watch, but ultimately resulted in a Phoenix Suns victory because ultimately that team is just much more talented than this Kawhi-less, Paul George-less iteration of the Los Angeles Clippers. Then we saw a Giannis-less Milwaukee Bucks team lose to the Miami Heat. We have some fun clips that we're going to break down from both of those two afternoon slash evening games. And then finally, we saw the Lakers just absolutely blitz the Memphis Grizzlies in the opening quarter. And we're going to dive deep into how that happened uh, with some really fun clips. Again, we have some fun, uh, exciting things that we're going to talk about on the show today. Hit that like button, hit that subscribe button. It's going to be a great show. This will also go up on the podcast feed without clips, but you'll get to enjoy it uh, in terms of your ear holes. Okay. So let's start with this Lakers Grizzlies game. That was really just a fascinating uh, blitzing by the Los Angeles Lakers in the opening quarter. And it didn't quite start that way. If yes, the Lakers went up 10 to two, And they looked by far to be the more engaged team defensively. But it's worth noting here that, again, we saw some struggles early on from the Lakers offense. They scored 10 points in the first five minutes. They probably had 10 points on something like their first 10 possessions of this game. It was not exactly a free-flowing offensive environment for a number of ways, but then eventually for reasons that we'll talk about here momentarily after we introduce what happened here, we'll discuss how they changed that with a single set uh, that really changed the complexion of this game. Anthony Davis was the guy here. He dropped 31 points at 17 rebounds, completely dominated the game defensively on the interior. The Memphis Grizzlies shot 37.6 percent from the field in this game if you go and actually uh look at their two-point percentage as well it it was not much better they actually only shot 40.7 percent from two-point range in this game and i think that the biggest reason for that was anthony davis's consistency 
in terms of his rim protection, always being available from the weak side, uh, continually making life hard for Jaron Jackson, who uh, goes four for 12 in this game. Uh, a lot of his shots came on the interior. He turned it over six times as well. This is a very sloppy game from the Memphis Grizzlies in terms of the ball. They turned it over 18 times. This is a team that typically does not do that. Uh, it was an incredibly impressive performance, I thought, defensively from the Lakers. But I actually want to focus on the offense here, and I want to focus on some adjustments that Darvin Ham made throughout the course of the first quarter that ultimately got the Lakers the victory here. And this Lakers coaching staff is one that I've had a lot of questions about in terms of rotations, in terms of the way that they tend to go about attacking their opponent uh, in terms of not having enough size out there, in terms of not having enough speed and skill out there. I thought that what Darvin Ham did after those first five minutes of this first quarter was really, really impressive. And I think we have to go back and start with game two in the first quarter to understand some of the issues that occurred uh, throughout these first quarters for the Lakers. So we're going to pull up some clips here as I'm talking through them, and we're going to just kind of dive in here. So as you'll see throughout the course of these clips, the biggest number one overarching thing that I want you to take a look at is the way that the Memphis Grizzlies are going to help off of Jared Vanderbilt's man almost every single time. A lot of the time that man is Jaron Jackson. A lot of the time that player is Santi Aldama. But at the end of the day, the end result is the same. They're helping off. They're crowding the paint. They're making it much more difficult for the Lakers to be able to actually get into their sets and do what they want to do. So here you're going to see LeBron. He's taking on Dylan Brooks. He's trying to, he has like an empty side of the court here. And Jared Vanderbilt is going to go to the corner here. There's just no real concern here from Xavier Tillman that Jared Vanderbilt is going to the corner. He takes a little peek here momentarily, as you'll see right here to check where uh, his man is. That's Jared Vanderbilt leaking out to the corner. But ultimately, he sees LeBron driving, does not care, and he's just going to crowd the paint, right? There are three men in the paint there. Ultimately, LeBron is a stud. He gets the offensive rebound. But this is what the Grizzlies did in game two of this series. They crowded the paint constantly. You're going to see here D'Angelo Russell rejects a screen. Jared Vanderbilt is in that corner on the cross side of the court. And this is just an easy rotation for Jaron Jackson. It's going to result uh, the worst case scenario in a kickout from D'Angelo Russell to a player that the Grizzlies are more than happy to see shoot the basketball. But look, this is just a simple rotation here from Jaron Jackson. Double team. D'Angelo probably does need to make that cross corner kickout. Jared has to get it up to Austin Reeves on the wing. You have to make the Grizzlies X out and make sure that they're solid in their rotation. But instead, D'Angelo Russell takes this terrible shot. And again, you see the way that the Grizzlies played this in the first quarter of this game in game two. Again here, D'Angelo Russell going to take an empty side ball screen here. Again, Santi Aldama is the player guarding Jared Vanderbilt in this set. Xavier Tillman knows that he has the help on the backside from Santi Aldama, he is able to stay home while also playing in the gap against Anthony Davis. Santi rotates all the way in 
to just be that impediment in the interior for when D'Angelo Russell is going to drive results in a turnover because Jared Vanderbilt ends up sinking a little bit too deep into that dunker spot area. D'Angelo Russell tries to hit the kick out, steal from Tyus Jones, goes the other way. Now we're going to see D'Angelo Russell bring this ball up again. Jared Vanderbilt is going to go to the corner, stays up at the wing actually this time, I'm sorry. High ball screen from Anthony Davis. We're going to see him rotate it over. Post up for Anthony Davis. Again, Santi Aldama is here. He is on the weak side. He is guarding Jared Vanderbilt. The Grizzlies just are not concerned about Vanderbilt, especially when LeBron sinks to the corner and they have an easy tag here uh, and they have an easy help rotation down with Jared Vanderbilt. Again, Santi Aldama rotates over multiple guys in the paint. Just a very easy, easy play. And then finally here, this is the last clip, I believe. We're going to go through. Austin Reeves is going to come up. He's going to take a ball screen. He's going to take it from Anthony Davis here. Again, significant rotation from Jaron Jackson coming over because they are not concerned about what Jared Vanderbilt is doing. Uh, This is some spread action where they have Jared Vanderbilt in the corner constantly. And because Jared Vanderbilt is not a shooter, it just completely and utterly breaks everything down. They do hit the shooter there, but that's a shot that Memphis is more than happy with, right? Okay, so we're going to remove this from the stream, and now we're going to go to what happened in game three here. In game three, the offense did not start incredibly well for the Los Angeles Lakers here. Uh, Again, they only had... 10 points in the first five minutes of this game. And what you're going to see is a very smart adjustment from Darvin Ham, from this staff. Instead of trying to continue along the road of running these spread high ball screens, maybe have a single high ball screen on the wing to try and get their players into the middle of the court, they're going to start setting double drag actions. And they ran this play basically for five consecutive minutes in the first quarter and just completely destroyed the Grizzlies here, as you're going to see. So Austin Reeves is going to come up. It's going to set the screen. And this is a double drag where Reeves is going to stay on the wing. Anthony Davis is going to roll all the way to the basket. And the thing that you're going to consistently notice here is that Anthony Davis is going to get behind Xavier Tillman And because it's an empty side of the court in terms of where the help should come from from the corner, there is not a low man to tag on Anthony Davis, which means Xavier Tillman has to stay somewhat at home here. Now, Santi Aldama actually makes a mistake here in the right corner defensively, left corner offensively. He needs to just really sink in here and really just make D'Angelo Russell hit that corner kick out to Jared Vanderbilt. He's a little bit late on that same side rotation. And because of it, D'Angelo Russell gets an easy bucket. Okay. Second play here. Literally the next time down the court, as you'll see, 13 seconds later. Reeves comes up, sets the first in the double drag. Just a very quick slip before D'Angelo Russell even gets to the second screen in this action. Immediately, Austin Reeves in the paint, hits that cross corner kick out. Quick rotation up to the wing, quick rotation back down. Jared Vanderbilt, again, not a shooter. He misses the shot, but Reeves is there. 
offensive rebound. They're a little bit confused in terms of picking up their men. Okay. Here we go again. Same play again, opposite side of the court. D'Angelo Russell comes. Rui Achimura hits this corner or hits this wing three. Again, same play here. Dennis Schroeder, opposite side of the court again from where we started. Schroeder's going to miss this layup. Uh, attempted put back again from Anthony Davis, but you will see that they just did not have an answer for this because they couldn't figure out who was supposed to help from the low side of the court. Again, as we saw in game two, the Grizzlies are relying on heavy help at the basket from guys like Santi Aldama, Jaron Jackson Jr. in order to try and slow down the dribble penetration from the Los Angeles Lakers. Here we're going to go again. Austin Reeves going to go up, set the first part. Anthony Davis sets a bit of a slip screen, not quite a ghost screen, gets behind Xavier Tillman here. Just a very quick uh Offensive rebound because Anthony Davis is in position because he got behind Xavier Tillman. Gets this rebound, goes back up, thunderous dunk. Again, same set, same action. This time it is a bit of a ghost screen from Anthony Davis. D'Angelo Russell throws it up, easy bucket. And again, this one around the six-minute mark. Austin Reeves sets the first screen. Anthony Davis sets the second screen. This time you get a cut from the slot from LeBron James. You'll notice again, after those first two sets that the Lakers run with this action, where Jared Vanderbilt was the player in the corner, a smart adjustment from Darvin Ham takes Jared Vanderbilt off of the court, even though John Morant is still on the court. And what the reaction here is, is that Luke Kennard cannot leave that opposite corner. John Morant has to like kind of tag from... Uh, the high man basically here. He is the low man on the opposite side, even though he's the lone man on the opposite side. Again, slot cut here. LeBron James, downhill freight train going to the basket. This is how the Lakers ultimately won this game. If you go through everything that we saw in this game, outside of this little run here in the first quarter where the Lakers were up 35 to nine at the end of the first quarter, the Grizzlies outplayed them in the third quarter and the fourth quarter. You can say that the Lakers took their foot off the gas. I think I would agree defensively. You can say that John Morant was absolutely heroic in the fourth quarter. And he was Uh, John Morant finishes this game with 45 points and 13 assists on 26 shots, 14 free throws. He made 13 of those free throws. John Morant was unconscious in the fourth quarter. And he is the reason that this game ended up being at least somewhat competitive in the fourth quarter. But the reason the Lakers won this game is that little seven-minute stretch in the first quarter where they continued to run this double-drag action and the Grizzlies had absolutely no answer because they couldn't figure out who needed to help, who needed to uh, be that low man to try and get Anthony Davis out of rolling position and how to essentially stop the dribble penetration of D'Angelo Russell and Dennis Schroeder at times. So the Lakers win this game. They're up 2-1. to one. They have home court advantage at this point in the series. I picked the Lakers to win this series coming into it because I just kind of thought that their depth and their size and Anthony Davis's defensive ability at this stage uh, I think has been really remarkable 
over the course uh, of this season when he has played. Uh, also thought that we'd see more from LeBron James. We haven't really seen LeBron James get out of second gear, it feels like, in this series. I know that he had 25 points, nine rebounds, five assists in this game, but there wasn't ever a point where it felt like he was dominating this game. It was a quiet 25, nine and four, which is the crazy thing. The guy that stood out a ton to me again was Rui Achimura. He gets that technical foul. I thought it was so indicative of his game today. People in Washington, you know, I've talked about this on the podcast before with Fred Katz when he was been, when he was on the show, he covered Rui in Washington. One of the things about Rui was, they really had to push him to bring him out of his shell in terms of aggressiveness. They would really try and like, especially Russell Westbrook would try and like get at him and try to like, give him a quick little like shove, like, Hey, let's get going. Let's get energetic. Let's get aggressive because the, everyone knows the tools that Rui has. Rui six foot nine, very fluid athletically can get downhill in transition, has that very high release point on the mid range shot can be a mismatch nightmare when he wants to be. But throughout the course of his career, he hasn't been aggressive enough trying to get to the basket, try to get downhill. He gets that technical foul because he feels that little shove from either David Roddy or John Concher uh, after the play was over. I think the Lakers will be ecstatic with that technical foul, if I'm being honest. It came at a weird time, and it feels like the Grizzlies after that went on a bit of a run. The Lakers win this game, but an aggressive Rui Achimura is the thing that the Lakers hoped for when they traded for him. It's the thing that they really desperately wanted to try and get out of him. Uh, I'm sure that it's a part of their scouting process, was trying to figure out, hey, we have the right mix of guys, we have the right mentality to where we can get the most out of this guy uh, when he plays on the court for us. And so far in the playoffs, this is a very advantageous matchup for Rui. Uh, He is playing a Memphis Grizzlies team where there are a number of potential mismatches out on the court for him to try and attack. Luke Kennard, uh, you know, Tyus Jones, John Morant in two of the games that he has played. These guys are a little too small for Rui. Uh, Even someone like David Roddy isn't quite big enough or long enough to be able to really impact and affect the shot. He can stop him from getting to the basket because of his strength, but he can kind of just shoot over David Roddy. So I don't know if this will continue if the Lakers are to move on to play Sacramento, a team with a little bit more size, guys like Keegan Murray that they can match up with him, ties uh, Trey Lyles off the bench uh, who can match up with Rui a little bit better. And if it's the Warriors, they have a number of guys they can throw uh, in terms of athletic and size uh, at Rui Achimura to be able to slow him down. But the Grizzlies don't really have that. And it's great to see Rui take advantage of that over the course of this series. And it's really been a breakout for him. This is an incredibly important series. Rui Achimura hits free agency this offseason. And undeniably, he's made himself money in this playoff series. Because one of the big questions about Rui coming into the playoffs was how will he perform? He does not necessarily have the kind of game that you would think translates toward playing well with stars but you know i think so far in these three games that we've seen him coming off the bench being that kind of sixth man shot creator is a really ideal role for him uh 
in games like this in playoff settings. And if he has it going in terms of the jumper, he can be impactful, even though his off-ball defense can sometimes be a little bit of a mess. I think it's been really good so far in the playoffs. The fact that, again, he's active, he's aggressive, he's engaged. This Lakers coaching staff has done a really, really good job getting the most out of Rui Achimura. Uh, a couple of questions here from B in the YouTube comments here. Do I think Austin Reeves will get an offer sheet? I do. I think he's worth more than what the Lakers can offer him. It will be interesting to see if anybody tries to go down that road. Uh, and then the second question from B here is, what does Rui's money look like? I think he's a really fascinating one because before this playoff run, I would have told you that I thought he was somewhere below the mid-level and I thought that he would be asking for more than the mid-level. And I don't really know how to square that circle necessarily. Now, with how he's playing in the playoffs, if this continues and continues to go down the road of him being an impact player for the Lakers, if they get out of this series, if they go on and play the Kings or the Warriors, he could really be someone that a team sees as an upside swing, given his physical tools that everyone has always known. It's just never been necessarily... uh a circumstance that we've seen consistently from Rui. Uh, and then finally here, uh, in terms of Memphis ag- adjustments from uh, Zvonimir Bercalo, he asks, should Memphis try some Zaire Williams and Jake LaRavia? I think Jake LaRavia has like a calf injury right now, and I don't know that he is an option for Memphis. But Zaire Williams, I think, would be an interesting adjustment just because we saw him at the point of attack at times last year in the playoffs. Now, the thing is that, the Lakers don't really have that guy that you have to guard a bigger, longer athletic player at the point of attack with. But I would be intrigued just to see if he can give anything at the very least defensively for Memphis. Again, it feels like Memphis hasn't had problems defensively, but I'd just be trying to find a lot of different answers and trying to find a lot of different things to throw at the Lakers because I think the Lakers, just given the lack of depth that Memphis has without Steven Adams, without Brandon Clark, uh, last game without John Morant, it is difficult, I think, for them to match up uh, when the Lakers adjust. They just don't have as many answers uh, for opposing teams because their depth is hindered right now by the injuries. The last question here by Andrew Kolb. Thoughts on Dylan Brooks? He seems to shoot the Grizzlies out of a lot of playoff games. I would be looking to move on from Dylan Brooks in the offseason. He's an unrestricted free agent. I get that he has probably played a very real role in terms of building this toughness culture that the Grizzlies really value, this competitiveness that they really value in guys that they select. Think guys like Desmond Bain. Jake LaRavia fits this mold. David Roddy fits this mold. Uh, Certainly Jaron Jackson and John Morant fit this mold. Uh, I just think that it's really hard to live when you have this guy that's taking these terribly inefficient shots and continuing to make these kind of boneheaded decisions. I think that the Grizzlies will be in the market as well this offseason for a potential star wing. Uh, And we'll maybe talk about one later in the show that I would be going all out for if I was Memphis. Okay, that's 20 minutes on this game. Let's take a quick commercial break. We will be back momentarily. We're going to go to Milwaukee and Miami next. (laughs) 
we're talking about players securing the bag when they get drafted in June. I need to tell you about securing your internet connection with NordVPN. What is a VPN? It's a virtual private network. A VPN reroutes your traffic through a remote server, encrypting it in the process. This is going to hide your location from your ISP, hackers, and from other people looking to get your data. Everybody knows that I watch as many movies as I can. I think I've probably watched like 40 or 50 this year already. Some movies are blocked in Australia. It's really hard for me to watch them. Uh, for instance, uh, anybody who's tried to get their hands on Godzilla Minus One recently knows that it's basically only available in Japan. And you need a VPN if you want to go to like Amazon Prime or something to be able to watch it. So when I'm blocked from watching a movie in Australia, I just queue up my VPN. I change my location and it unlocks a category of movies from all of my favorite streaming services. As somebody who's always on the go, connecting to public Wi-Fi is a necessity, but it's also just a goldmine for hackers. That's where Nord comes in, creating a secure tunnel for my data to travel through away from prying guys. There are other benefits to Nord as well. Your browsing history is yours and yours alone. Your virtual location is masked from those who seek to track your every move. It's like having a force field around your online identity. Nord VPN also goes the extra mile with threat protection. Malware, trackers, dodgy ads, they're all going to get blocked. It's like having a shot blocking big around your devices 24-7. Game Theory is offering an exclusive deal for NordVPN. You're going to get four extra months and up to 75% off subscriptions. Just head to nordvpn.com slash game theory, G-A-M-E-T-H-E-O-R-Y, to claim your account. Plus, with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee, you've got nothing to lose and everything to gain. Go to nordvpn.com slash game theory to claim your account. nordvpn.com slash game theory. Guys, I can't emphasize enough uh, how much I use Nord every day of my life. Uh, Nord is a fantastic sponsor for us. So go support Nord. And it's a great product. So nordvpn.com slash game theory. Okay, we're back. Let's jump into Milwaukee and Miami. I don't think I'm ready to give any sort of big overarching takeaway on this series. I still think Milwaukee is probably okay long-term. I still think that once Giannis gets back, this is an entirely different series than what we've seen so far. A big part of what I think Miami's success has been is that ability to go smaller when Milwaukee is playing the two big constructions like Bobby Portis and Brooke Lopez in this uh, in this game today, particularly. Uh, Bobby Portis is obviously a very useful player off the bench for Milwaukee, but when you start using him often against a smaller team like Miami, I think it's a little bit too easy, especially for a genius like Eric Spolstra to be able to involve him in primary actions and to be able to get shooters free from distance. Miami goes 16 of 33 from three. They've just been unconscious in this series from behind the three point line. Uh, 
Duncan Robinson goes five for six from three in this game. Jimmy Butler goes four for four from three in this game. If Jimmy Butler and Duncan Robinson are going nine of 10 from three, the odds are you're going to lose just most nights. That's the reality of the situation. Having said that, I do think that some of the creative ways that Miami is utilizing Jimmy to get him free are really interesting. Now, Jimmy Butler only had to play 28 minutes tonight, which is huge for Miami moving forward. He goes 12 of 19 from the field, has five rebounds, four assists, two steals, and goes for 30 points. And the big thing that stands out to me in terms of the way they utilized him in this game without Giannis and Tedekumpo, they're either as a primary potential defender on him or as a help side defender coming over from that weak side it is the way that they've gotten Jimmy the ball in empty side action. So we're going to, again, pull up some tape here, dive into the way that Miami is utilizing Jimmy Butler here. So you're going to see, again, Jimmy Butler on an empty side of the court. He clears out Caleb Martin from that side. And he has Drew just on an island here. Drew Holiday is one of the absolute best defenders that you would want on an island against Jimmy Butler. There is no question that this is an assignment that Drew is about as well-equipped as anybody to handle. It's just that Jimmy is, I don't know, three inches taller, a little bit longer than Drew is, and it's just hard. So, again, empty side, ball screen, and then Struess again clears out. Just a bit of a miscommunication there between Brooke Lopez and Drew Holiday, two great defenders. It happens. Uh, I love the way, though, that they use – Jimmy here as a ball handler going toward that empty side of the court, basically putting Brooke Lopez to the test in terms of what his decision is going to be. Do I actually go out and guard Max Struess at the three-point line, a very high-level three-point shooter, or do I have to stay home on Jimmy? Probably leaves a little bit too early. At the end of the day, I think they kind of just need to switch that action on the empty side of the court, as you'll see here momentarily. But At the end of the day, there's a bit of miscommunication. Easy dunk for Jimmy Butler. We're going to go to the next play here. Uh, Jimmy Butler, top of the key. He's actually going to ask literally everybody just to clear out of this side of the court again. Drew Holiday, he posts Drew here. And it's just like kind of that's the difference in Drew Holiday and Jimmy Butler's size. Jimmy can just shoot over the top and elevate over Drew. That's probably a shot that Milwaukee is fine with but I don't know how great I feel about Jimmy Butler just getting a wide open look, Uh, not wide open, but an in rhythm turnaround jumper as good as drew holiday is Jimmy Butler's a stud. This guy is locked in in the playoffs every single year. This is not easy uh, in my opinion uh, for Milwaukee. Again, they're probably fine with that shot. I don't know that I would be though. Again, Jimmy Butler emptied out again. Uh, You're going to see a screen come up, slip to the top of the key. And just a few pump fakes. Drew Holiday, again, a little bit too short. This is going to be Jimmy kind of slipping into the corner here. Uh, Oh, no, it's not. This is actually a counter. I'm sorry. Uh, This is one that I just wanted to show as a counter. So Kyle Lowry here, you would expect, based on what we'd seen throughout this game, Jimmy just to slip to the corner and, again, get that isolated side of the court. But Kyle adjusts here and goes to the empty side himself, leaving Jimmy at the top of the key. 
And yeah, you can say the Pat Connaughton kind of fell out of the play here, but I really like that as an adjustment to kind of make Milwaukee think about different potential options here. Again, you're going to see this is a Bam Adebayo rebound into a Kyle Lowry uh, hit ahead. You know, Duncan clears out. He's at the top of the key. Everybody clears out. You're going to see this is just a very easy play for Jimmy to get around Brooke Lopez. Again, I think that was the best option in any sort of ball screen action. You probably had to just live with Brooke switched on to Jimmy. It's not an ideal circumstance, uh, but you have to kind of hope that Brooke can contain in this circumstance. He doesn't, but this is the kind of problem that Jimmy Butler presents for defenses. He is such a mismatch nightmare. His size is a little bit too big for smaller guys like Drew Holiday, a little bit too quick and powerful for guys like Brooke Lopez. And again, finally here, emptied outside of the court. This is Joe Ingles on him. I mean, I'm sure that Jimmy was just licking his lips here. All due respect to Joe, uh, one of the most competitive guys you'll find in the NBA. Uh, you know, Drew is kind of like, you'll see, inching over. He's kind of assuming that we're going to see Jimmy drive and go for it again. Again, gets cut off here by Ingles. Jimmy actually misses this shot. But you know what? Like, that's a shot that they're going to be happy with. This is how Jimmy Butler, throughout the course of this game, ended up with his 30 ball. They just completely empty out the side of the court, and they're very comfortable. Now, if you're Milwaukee, how do you adjust to this, right? I think it's actually a pretty easy adjustment. Get Giannis back. <laughs> like, if you have Giannis there on those screening actions where they're trying to get Jimmy into the empty side of the court, you just switch them. Giannis swallows up Jimmy. It's way harder to shoot over the top of Giannis than it is Drew Holiday if you're Jimmy Butler. Uh, or you can just straight up have Jimmy guarded by Giannis in those circumstances if they really start to uh, go repeatedly to that set where they're getting Giannis uh, or getting Jimmy, I'm sorry, in that empty side of the court. The adjustment is get Giannis back. Uh, ultimately, that's what a lot of these adjustments come down to. If you're the Milwaukee Bucks, uh, get Giannis back on the court and things are different and the entire geometry of the uh, series changes, essentially. Again, though, th this is a game where Miami, again, shot an unconscious percentage from three. Milwaukee throughout the year, especially with Giannis, has been very consistent at closing out on three-point shooters and making it difficult for them. Uh, that's part of what their defense is, right? They trust that if guys attack a heavy closeout, they have Brooke Lopez on the interior, and he's going to be able to contest around the basket. That is the way that their defense works. It's much harder to make that defense work, and it's much harder to get that help defender in there if you're going on the empty side of the court. You really just need an absolute stud one-on-one -on -one defender that Jimmy can't just shoot over the top of. The problem for Milwaukee in this circumstance is Drew is just a little too small for Jimmy, and they don't really have a primary wing defender. A lot of their guys are, you know, six foot five and shorter that Jimmy uh, can just kind of shoot over the top of and elevate. So. Again, this is why I didn't want to spend a ton of time on this series necessarily. Miami is up 2-1. They have home court advantage still. Uh, that's an important factor if you're the Milwaukee Bucks. As soon as Giannis gets back, this is an entirely different series, and we'll see how Eric Spolstra adjusts. And if he can stay on the front foot against Mike Budenholzer, a guy that throughout the course of his career has not necessarily always stayed on the front foot of games. Okay, let's go to the third game that happened today. It was the second game that happened chronologically in the day. We are basically just going uh, back in time throughout the course of this day. 
Uh, this game was the Phoenix Suns against the Los Angeles Clippers. The Suns regain home court advantage. They beat the Clippers 112 to 100. Uh, this was, again, just an absolute masterclass from Devin Booker. We talked about that on the last podcast about how his defense particularly has been very high level throughout the course of this series. He's become a true two-way player. And I was talking to you know an NBA executive earlier today, and we were just kind of trying to discuss how many guys would you actually take over Devin Booker in this playoffs right now based off of he's, how he's played. We said Kawhi if Kawhi is healthy. We said probably Giannis if Giannis is healthy. Maybe Jimmy Butler. There are a few others that are certainly in Devin Booker's ballpark. Joel Embiid is certainly one of them. Kevin Durant on his own team is certainly one of them. Stephen Curry, absolutely one of them. But Devin Booker's been the best player in the series so far outside of Kawhi Leonard, and he's played in all four games. That's the critical part. And it really does come down to the fact that Devin Booker has drastically improved on the defensive end. You cannot take advantage of him anymore uh, in switch opportunities. He is big. He is strong. He is active. He really gives a shit on that end now. Early in his career, Devin had some engagement issues that felt like defensively. He's not that anymore. He is an absolute stud, and I think he deserves an immense amount of credit for the way he has gone about improving his game. On top of that, Devin had seven assists in this game, and that is a big underrated part of how Devin Booker has drastically improved throughout the course of his career. He has gotten much better uh, at finding the open man over the last three years, over instead of the first you know few years of his career, where it was a lot more difficult shots, a lot tougher looks, a lot uh, a lot of contested opportunities. He's still taking contested opportunities, but it feels like he is taking fewer terrible shots, which is important for them moving forward. The big thing I want to talk about, though, with the Phoenix Suns is something that I talked about on the last podcast. DeAndre Ayton, I said that the Suns, desperately needed more from DeAndre Ayton in order to go further in the playoffs. And I think that they can win this series without DeAndre Ayton playing at his best. But I think we saw today the real differentiator in terms of what happens when DeAndre Ayton is playing a real factor in terms of offensively consistently rim running consistently getting to the basket and making his presence felt the Clippers in game two or no, I'm sorry game three felt like they could just play small the whole game there were times where they had nobody above six foot five out on the court and that was an adjustment Ty Lu made because he felt like DeAndre Ayton was not going to actually hurt them and impose his will on the game Different story in game four. DeAndre Ayton goes for 15 points and 13 rebounds. He goes seven of 13 from the field. And I want to point out specifically where all of his makes came from. I think this is a really important thing and the context of where all of his makes came from. So here you're going to see Kevin Durant drive off of a heavy closeout, off of an offensive rebound from Russell Westbrook. He's going to spot... DeAndre Ayton right in the dunker spot. DeAndre Ayton goes up strong, finishes right at the basket. No more of that, you know, I'm two feet away from the basket. I'm going to throw up a little hook shot in order to protect the ball while also not going up strong. He goes up, dunks it, finishes it at the rim. Okay, second play here. 
This is a miss from Chris Paul. There he is on the offensive glass. DeAndre Ayton had four offensive rebounds in this game. This was his lone putback. It was an important putback uh, in the context of this game just to establish what I thought was a bit more of a tone of DeAndre Ayton being willing to finish around the basket a little bit more consistently. Now we're going to go to the second quarter here where we're going to start into the ball screen part of this. DeAndre Ayton catches in that short roll area, but instead of stopping and surveying or stopping and popping for that little floater, drives all the way to the rim uses those long strides, uses that aggressiveness, uses that power and that force that he has in order to actually just dunk the ball. There was someone going up on the weak side. He could have easily stopped for that floater. We've seen him do it before. He does not do that here. He goes up strong. This is an enormous thing for this Phoenix offense. If DeAndre Ayton is a downhill presence, it makes it so you can put Devin Booker and Kevin Durant on the weak side of the action and basically put opposing teams into impossible decision circumstances. Do you tag off of Devin Booker or Kevin Durant, or do you not tag off of them and give DeAndre Ayton an easy bucket? This is why DeAndre Ayton getting downhill is so important. He makes life so much easier for the rest of the Phoenix Suns offense. You're going to see this again here. He's going to come up. He's going to set a screen. He's going to flip it for Kevin Durant. He's going to roll all the way to the basket. He's going to dunk it. Very simple stuff. DeAndre Ayton can genuinely walk into 15 points a night if he wants to just by rolling all the way to the rim with the talent surrounding him. Again, we're going to come up. He's going to set the screen off the KD handoff for Devin Booker. It's kind of a Spain action at the end of the day where they're screening the screener. DeAndre Ayton rolls to the basket. Easy lob for Devin Booker out of that set action. Okay, again, high ball screen for DeAndre Ayton. This is going to be the floater, but as you're going to see, this is the only one that he made today. I'm good when this is a counter to things. This can't be the primary thing for DeAndre Ayton. This needs to be the counter for him. Ivica Zubats also on the court, playing heavily in drop. That's a great counter for when Zubats is on the court. Now, again, we're going to see a high ball screen. Chris Paul going to go around it. He's going to throw this lob. Incredibly athletic, acrobatic finish for DeAndre Ayton. These are the things DeAndre Ayton needs to do. He can walk into 15 points a game, which is all Phoenix needs. Phoenix needs him to be an active, weak side rim protector, and they need him to rim run constantly. I thought that this was DeAndre Ayton's best game of the series. And as he continues to do this, this is where he's going to be an impactful player for the Phoenix Suns, especially in this iteration, surrounded by Chris Paul, Devin Booker, Kevin Durant. Chris Paul had a great fourth quarter. It was funny. He had a moment in the fourth quarter early on where Mason Plumlee was able to stay attached to him uh, in an isolation situation. And I texted a friend. I was like, you know, man, I'm a little bit worried about Chris Paul if he's like not even beating Mason Plumlee off the bounce here. At the end of the day, Chris Paul ends up really doing a great job uh, throughout the fourth quarter of orchestrating things, being the silencer, the guy that uh, is really comfortable and confident taking shots in big moments. The Clippers made runs in the fourth quarter, led by Russell Westbrook. And Chris Paul was willing to be that guy that stepped up in the big moments and shut down any momentum that the Clippers had. Now, the final thing I want to talk about here is Russell Westbrook. Russell Westbrook goes for 37 points on 29 shots, six rebounds, four assists, 
was an absolutely terrific game from Russell Westbrook. I was so excited to see him play this well. It's the thing I think I've gotten the most enjoyment out of in these playoffs is just Russell Westbrook being the guy that we've seen him be previously, that aggressive downhill attacking presence. And I think it just goes to show the level of confidence that it takes at times to really feel like you are uh, a part of a scheme and not an afterthought, right? At times it's felt like, especially with the Lakers, Russell Westbrook was kind of an afterthought with them. It was about LeBron. It was about Anthony Davis. If he fucked up, he was coming out of the game. Uh, if he screwed up, he would start coming off the bench for multiple games like happened at the beginning of this season, right? Russell Westbrook has his warts. Uh, as a player, you know, seemingly as a person, although I will say every player that's been around him, every staff member within organizations that has been around him, uh, for the most part that I've spoken to really likes Russell and says he's very respectful, very good person. Uh you know, always, I think, takes care of the people on the staff uh, in terms of the people that aren't making a ton of money. He makes sure it gives them like heavy Christmas gifts. That's been reported throughout the course of his career as well. I think that throughout the course of that Lakers run, he seemed to lose confidence. And now that he has this role with the Clippers, with Kawhi Leonard, with a friend of his in Paul George, which I think is something you can't really underestimate here. We're seeing a Russell Westbrook that is re-engaged. We're seeing maybe the effect of Ty Lu just telling him, you are not coming out of this game. We need you. Be the old Russ. Be the downhill aggressive Russ that we've seen. Uh, and look, how does this work next year when they actually have Paul George and Kawhi Leonard, hopefully, uh, playing next to him? Who's to say, Right. I don't think we know. I don't think anybody knows. I don't think Russ knows. I don't think that organization knows, but I would absolutely pay to find out based off of what we've seen. Uh, they can't offer him a crazy amount, but if I, and by a crazy amount, I mean, they can basically offer him like the mini mid-level exception. Although given the new restrictions on the Clippers, they actually can't even offer him that. I think they are basically restricted via his non-bird rights to where the minimum or maybe even like the biannual exception, if they have that uh, is, the most they can offer him. If I was Russ, I would take it. I would look, it's easy for me to say it's not my money, but I know that I would prioritize happiness if I was Russell Westbrook and he looks happier. He looks more aggressive. He looks more on it, uh, both defensively and engaged defensively, particularly as well as uh, motivated than what, We've seen him over the course of the last couple of years, and I love it. I love seeing an engaged, motivated Russell Westbrook. I love seeing him uh, remind everybody of who he can be as an NBA player, and it's been great to see over the course of the last uh, last four games of this series, realistically. Uh, yeah, I think you know there are some people in the YouTube comments saying, look, it was just a – Horrific fit, you know, does this say more about the Lakers and LeBron's dealings with Westbrook or the Clippers? I don't know, man. I think it's just more about it wasn't a great fit. LeBron likes to dominate the ball and uh, on some level, and they had Anthony Davis coming in and out of the lineup. I just think that sometimes fits don't work. And it was so poisoned after the first season that it, it's it's just hard. 
it's really, really hard. LeBron's teams operate best when they're surrounded by shooters. The first segment of this podcast was literally devoted to what happens when you have a non-shooter as well as Anthony Davis in the lineup consistently next to LeBron James. It's hard. It's just not the best way for him to thrive because he loves to be able to spray the ball out to shooters. He loves to be able to get everybody involved. He loves to be able to play that uh, domineering yet unselfish style of basketball. And it's hard when you have non-shooters out there. And the crazy thing is that Russ is shooting the hell out of the ball right now. And I think, again, it shows confidence is the key. I think Russ is a guy that feeds off of proving people wrong, probably on some level. This is a guy that was a very low end recruit entering UCLA uh, was not expected to be a top five pick uh, even coming into the draft that he was a top five pick. And I think that all of this just motivates him. And I think that again, we're seeing a motivated Russell Westbrook and I absolutely enjoy it and love it. Okay. We're going to take one more quick commercial break because I've been talking for 45 minutes now. And then we're going to dive into the Brooklyn Nets uh, and a little bit of the 76ers, but mostly the Brooklyn Nets. We'll start with this. Beaker Jones says no Crocs uh, in the shoe game. Uh, shame. No, uh, not a Crocs guy. I might look like a Crocs guy. I'm not a Crocs guy. I think that is uh, that is an absolute non-starter uh, for me as a human being. Crocs. Yeah. Do not do not get it. Don't really understand it. I do like Uggs. I will say that uh, in Australia, Uggs with like sheepskin are like the absolute thing. We do have to enjoy Uggs. We have to shout out Uggs here. But Let's dive into the Philadelphia 76ers eliminating the Brooklyn Nets from the 2023 NBA playoffs. This is uh, a completely unsurprising result. The Nets were the weakest team heading into this playoffs just due to the trades they made uh, at the deadline. This is a team that unequivocally uh, just didn't have the firepower after those moves. Those moves might be best for them long-term, although we will talk about the Nets' long-term outlook here momentarily. But I just do not not see how this Nets team had a chance really against anybody. I think this result probably would have been very similar against any of the top five teams in the East. I think even the Knicks probably beat them in five, uh, especially with the way the Knicks have played throughout the course of this series. Today's game was kind of an embodiment of everything we've seen, even without Joel Embiid and with Paul Reed, you know, playing really well, especially on the offensive glass, grabbing eight extra possessions uh, for the Philadelphia 76ers. This is just a team that cannot score. I'm sorry, the Brooklyn Nets, they just don't have the dudes right now to be able to consistently create offense. Their best offensive creator is Mikhail Bridges. Their second best offensive creator is Spencer Dinwiddie. Uh, That is not going to get it done enough times. And that's what makes all of this so tricky, in my opinion, for where they go moving forward, because everybody in the NBA is looking for a star player. Everybody in the NBA is looking for a primary option. In the Nets, as much as I absolutely adore Mikhail Bridges, and he's one of my favorite players in the league, I think 
we saw throughout the course of this series that he can't be your primary option if you're going to win playoff games. And that's no disrespect to Mikhail Bridges, who again, unbelievable player, who I think proved throughout the time that he was with the Philadelphia 76ers, can be a genuine number two or number three option. He can take side ball screens. He can be a high-level mid-range shot creator. Obviously, if you give him an open three, he's going to knock it down at a really high level. I think that the upside for Mikhail Bridges is something like a better defensive Chris Middleton, genuinely. And Chris Middleton has had an absolutely stellar career. He's made four or five all-star games. He's been absolutely a critical, critical role of a team that won an NBA championship. It's just that I really don't buy him as a first option because I don't think he can consistently get enough paint penetration to be able to break down defenses. And that's what the Nets need in the offseason. And to add to this core moving forward, the problem for them is just that it's very difficult to try and figure out where that comes from now. The Nets are at, even though they have made all of these moves and they have acquired a number of picks from the Kyrie deal, from uh, certainly the Kevin Durant deal, they don't have quite the draft capital that you would think. And mostly it's because they don't have any upside for high-end draft capital moving forward if they did decide to move in a different direction and tank, right? So over the course of the next five years, and this is an incomplete accounting because as we know, you know, they have the Kyrie pick that they got from Dallas that is seven years out. They have a Phoenix pick they have seven years out. But look, I'm sure Phoenix fans care about what the next five years looks like. And I'm sure that, or I'm sorry, Brooklyn fans. I'm sure Brooklyn fans are looking and trying to figure out what do the next two years look like, even three years look like? I think it's really difficult to tell. So let's do a quick accounting of the picks that the Phoenix Suns have, or the Brooklyn Nets, I'm sorry. The Brooklyn Nets have both, I believe, 21 and 22 in this upcoming 2023 NBA draft. That's their own pick and Phoenix's first round pick. They owe their 2024 first round pick to Houston. So even if they wanted to tank, that is an unprotected pick. Even if they want to completely tank, they don't have any draft upside. And while I am someone who does not think that the 2024 draft class is particularly strong, it does really limit their upside long-term. 2025, they have a pick swap with Oklahoma City and Houston that does not favor them. It's mostly a pick swap with Houston. It's just that Oklahoma City is involved because of a former deal with Houston. Uh, I believe that that pick swap can't really even be in the top 10, if I remember correctly, uh, unless both the Nets and Houston are terrible. And if Houston is terrible by 2025, my God, uh, I am very sorry for Rockets fans. Uh, They also have Phoenix's first round pick in 2025. So they will have two first round picks in 2025. In 2026, they just owe their first round pick to Houston. In 2027, they have a pick swap with Houston, uh, but they also have Phoenix's pick. They have a potential Philadelphia first rounder uh, that could transfer that year. It might end up extending out another year, depending on previous trades that Philadelphia had made. Uh, so all, 
all told here, right? Two picks in 2023, two picks in 2025, potentially three picks in 2027. So that's seven picks in the next five years. It looks good on the surface, but because of all of these pick swaps and owed picks to Houston, to Houston, they don't actually have a lot of upside with these picks, which means to me, they have kind of one of two options here moving forward. They need to either decide to build around Mikhail Bridges and try to use those picks in order to go get a primary shot creator that can be a star. Maybe it's an upside swing. You know, maybe it's a, you know, maybe they try and get involved for Trey Young. Uh, I, I don't know if I was Atlanta, if I think that Brooklyn has the best potential option there. I don't know if I'm even moving Trey Young if I'm Atlanta. Uh, you know, maybe it's DeJounte Murray with one year left on the deal. You move a few first round picks. Atlanta's like, let's try and recoup some value here if they get bounced in five games from Boston. I don't know what the answer is, but I'm trying to show you that this is hard for Brooklyn now because they don't have the number one option and they also don't have the kind of high-end draft capital that teams like Detroit, Houston, Oklahoma City have had in order to bring about their own stars. In Detroit's case, Cade Cunningham, Jaden Ivey, both of whom I like more as potentially primary creators than Mikael Bridges, even if Mikael Bridges is a better overall player than those guys right now. Houston, I don't know if they have the guy yet, but they certainly have a top four pick this year to potentially get the guy. Uh, even though Jalen Green, I think they hope can be the guy. Uh, maybe Alperin Shangun, although I'm a little bit skeptical of him defensively holding up in playoff settings. So all of this leads to what should Brooklyn's direction be this offseason? And to kind of talk about that, I, I will kind of bring up their cap sheet moving forward. So shout out to uh, our good friends at Spotrack. Uh, shout out Keith Smith, who I think does a very diligent job of uh, collating and collecting all of this data. This is what their cap sheet looks like now. They obviously have Ben Simmons for two more years. If I'm Brooklyn, I'm looking at that as a sunk cost moving forward. And I'm trying to use Ben's contract as a move to potentially go and use that deal in a trade with somebody else. Maybe it's involving another bad contract. Maybe it's involving uh, a star that you try and get engaged with for draft picks that you have. I think there are a number of potential options there, but $40 million over the course of each of the next two years, essentially for Ben Simmons is a real problem. You have Mikhail Bridges for three more years. We'll come back to him. Spencer Dinwiddie, $20 million next year. I believe that that option is vested. That is locked in. Uh, he will, they will have to make a decision on him. Joe Harris, they have for one more year. Again, those two deals on expiring contracts, $39 million. You can think that there are teams that might value getting expiring money if they look to rebuild moving forward. Nick Claxton. This is a real problem for Brooklyn because Claxton has one year left at 9.6 million. And Nick was 
I would say Nick is their second most valuable asset moving forward behind Mikhail Bridges, and they only have him for one more year. This is where their timeline starts to get funky because with Nick, you're either going to have to decide, do we overpay to keep him or do we let him go for nothing or do we trade him this coming season for something? And if you trade him for something, what are you getting back? Because we saw, you know, Jakob Pertl, a slightly worse player, in my opinion, than Nick, better offensive player, worse defensive player than Nick, comparable salaries. I'm just trying to come up with a comparable situation here. Nick Claxton can maybe bring back a first round pick, a second round pick. Uh, those two assets put together. I don't think you're getting back two first round picks for Nick Claxton on an expiring deal. Because again, uh, maybe these new extension rules come in and Nick Claxton feels like he's worth something in the ballpark of 15 million. I think he's worth more on the open market given his age. Uh, Nick is only 24 years old right now. He's going to be hitting free agency at 25. That's going to be hitting the market at a prime age for a center who is as switchable as, as athletic, as terrific as Nick has proven to be defensively. Uh, the rest of these prospects, I'm just, I'm not a Cam Thomas fan at all. Uh, I did not really like Dayron Sharp. I had a second round grade coming uh, on him pre-draft last season. And then comes the big question of Cam Johnson. Now, Cam Johnson is going to be worth something in the ballpark of $25 million. I think he is going to get paid more than what Mikael Bridges got uh, in his deal. And that is where if you're Brooklyn, you kind of have to make a decision on this off season is when this decision has to come. It's not next off season. It's not the year after it's this off season. You have to make a decision on if you look to kind of tank a little bit, and maybe take a step back to take a step forward? Or do you try and re-sign Cam Johnson, bring this band back together, try and make a play-in run, and make it in a circumstance where you're no longer competing, but you're basically waiting for the next star to come available. For that to work, you have to hit on draft picks. You can't be in a circumstance where guys like Cam Thomas and Dayron Sharp are your picks. If that's the case, you you are in a very real significant problem space. Uh, you do have guys like Mikhail Bridges, Dorian Finney-Smith, Nick Claxton. It's a very similar situation, in my opinion, to what Toronto is in right now. Toronto loses Kawhi Leonard for nothing. And they have all these guys that are really great players. Guys like... Pascal Siakam, who's probably just a very slight level ahead of Mikhail Bridges in my mind. You have guys like Scotty Barnes, who you hit on in the draft. You have all of these interesting pieces that are longer. OG Ananobi, Gary Trent, Fred Van Vliet. But all those guys are free agents except for OG, Scotty, and Pascal. In Brooklyn's case... All of these guys are free agents next offseason. You have the makings of, if you can go find the star, pretty, pretty solid team to put around that star. But because none of your picks have the high-end upside, 
and because there are no stars available, I actually really wonder if you shouldn't look to take a step back this year. I just don't know if there's ever going to be a circumstance where the rocket or where the nets can outbid somebody for a star given their pick capital. They have a million picks. It's just that I don't know that any of those picks have the upside that other teams will be offering potentially without protection when stars do come available. So with that being the case, this is where I think the conversation about moving Mikael Bridges and Cam Johnson comes in. Cam Johnson's a terrific player. You know, Albert Singleton asks me here below, you know, what don't you like about Cam? Do you think he has Sexton Pool hero upside? I think he's just a totally different player than those guys. Uh, he is a real three-point gunner at six foot eight who can play off the ball, doesn't need a ton of usage like those guys do need usage. Uh, he is an okay defender. He can actually move his feet defensively and has the length to not get hammered every time he goes down the court. It's just that he can't, you know, really bulk up against the really physical guys, you know, like a LeBron, like a Kawhi, like a Giannis. And I think that those guys can actually kind of uh, move him around. So I think that Cam Johnson is worth 20 to $25 million a year from somebody. The question is, should it be from Brooklyn? And if Brooklyn does not have the upside moving forward, how do they gain that upside moving forward is the question. Organizationally, how do you find a way to actually get those high-level picks and get those high-level assets that you need in order to potentially restart this thing and get going again? Mikhail Bridges is one way. I would bet you that team like Memphis, team like Houston, teams all across the NBA would beat down Brooklyn's door to get a chance at Mikael Bridges. On that contract where he has three years left at like $65 million, that guy is maybe the most valuable asset that could hit the trade market this summer. And that puts Brooklyn in a really interesting position to potentially go and get some of those higher end assets that you're looking for. Again, Cam Johnson, a player that doesn't have the upside, in my opinion, that a Mikael Bridges does, but also in Cam Johnson's case, needs to hit the restricted free agency market and go find an offer sheet because Cam Johnson is much older than what people think. Cam Johnson is something like, you know, 27 years old, if I remember correctly. I mean, it's right here. I can look at it. Uh, he is 27 years old. This is his chance to get that four-year contract that sets his family up for life. He needs to hit restricted free agency. He needs to go find an offer sheet uh, and make it work. So with all of that being said, I think there's a real case for them to look into moving Mikhail Bridges this summer. That's going to be very disappointing for Brooklyn fans to hear. I think there's a case to keep him as well. If you think Mikhail can be a genuine number two on a great team, and I do, frankly, I think that you have a real case to keep him. I think Mikhail's an absolute superstar. And then on top of it, if you're Brooklyn, you're talking about a guy that 
really truly embodies all of the culture and all of the high-end attributes in terms of being a great human being and a great worker, Josai and seemingly everybody in that front office really wants to build around coming out of the Kyrie and KD era. So you have two roads here. If Memphis comes over the top and offers all of their draft picks and a bunch of young players, it's going to be tough to turn down. If Houston comes and offers all of their, you know, three first round picks that have high upside plus, you know, Alper and Shangun or somebody like that. What do you do? What if Detroit sees Mikhail as being like the best player to pair with Cade Cunningham and Jaden, Jaden Ivy. What if they offer you the number three overall pick plus multiple future firsts, if they end up outside of that top two range, gives you a chance to restart with a high end talent. I think there's a case here for both. I also think that this is probably the job that I would least want if I was in the NBA right now in terms of running the show, because this is a big market that is absolutely dwarfed by the New York Knicks when the Knicks are good and the Knicks are very good right now. And I think the Knicks are going to continue to be good and you don't have a ton of upside and you don't have a ton of picks. I think it's a really, really tough spot for Brooklyn moving forward. I think that you absolutely don't, you don't lose Cam Johnson for nothing. Uh, I think you maybe try and negotiate a sign and trade. If something really interesting comes available, if not, you just match and you move forward. If I'm Brooklyn, I think I just continue with the status quo. I build around Mikhail. I build around Cam. I build around Dorian Finney-Smith. I continue to keep the string playing out moving forward and uh, hoping that I hit on one of these two draft picks this year and hoping that a few big stars come available. I just don't know what their other options are unless they get a godfather offer for Mikhail Bridges. And I just, you know, I'm not interested in unprotected Memphis picks because that team is so good. I'm not interested in, uh, I'm not interested in picks from great teams with great young cores. It would have to be an older core, kind of like what happened with Phoenix, where I think they really value those Phoenix picks long term. Maybe that is part of the equation for them in 2025. They think that this Phoenix team is going to be a mess. I just don't think they're going to be such a big mess because they have Devin Booker. And as we've talked about before, Devin Booker is an absolute star. Uh, I just don't know. Uh, yeah, it's hard. This is the job I would want least in the NBA right now. And I feel for Brooklyn fans. I really do. Uh, let's they maybe take some questions here. I saw a really good one from Daniel uh, earlier. Daniel Garrett asks, who should start at the three tomorrow for the Cavs? Bad take forthcoming from me. And I'm well aware this is about to be a bad take. I would start Dean Wade. Uh, Assuming Dean Wade is 100%, and I'm pretty sure that he's healthy enough. Look, he just came in late in the game against uh, the Knicks in game three. The thing that the Cavs desperately need now is shooting. You can't play three non-shooters 
in a playoff series and expect to get high level offense, especially if Darius Garland is going to be less than a hundred percent in some way. Guys like Darius Garland and Donovan Mitchell need space. This is why Mitchell Robinson has dominated this series so far. He has wrecked Jared Allen because he can just stay around the paint and not really have to worry about guys like Isaac Okoro, Karis Levert to an extent. I know Karis took 11 threes last game. He made three of them and he's not a great shooter. Lamar Stevens is not a guy that can shoot. Danny Green uh, does not look great thus far in this playoff series. I would go completely off the radar. I would bring in the guy that I feel like can shoot. And I would go Dean Wade. I'm not saying you play Dean Wade for more than 20 minutes, maybe even like 15 minutes. But if we're talking about starting lineup, knowing that Karis Levert is going to come in and play 25 to 30 minutes for sure, I think there is a very real case to play Dean Wade over the other guys because I think Dean Wade fits better than Isaac Okoro and Karis LeVert with all of the starters. I think Karis is certainly a better player. And I think Okoro can be a better player long-term. But the problem is that you can't play three non-shooters in the NBA. You can't do it. It's too easy in the playoffs to just condense the paint uh, and make it way too difficult. Okay. From Jason Thompson. I'm just reading this now. Uh, This looks like a somewhat complicated question. So we'll see what I can come up with. Do you think the reported cap exception in the new CBA for second round picks materially changes the way these picks are valued by teams, especially for high second round picks? Yes. And yes, I think the answer is yes, because as it was reported from Shams Sharania, The thing is that these are going to be three and four year contracts. Agents always try and do what, for instance, Kevin Bradbury did with rep one representing Max Christie last year. He knew after the Lakers went out and used their, you know, a significant amount of their mid-level exception on Lonnie Walker, that they didn't really have an option to sign Max Christie to a long-term deal. So he used that leverage against them and got Max Christie on a two-year deal to where if Max blows up next season in some way as a long rangy wing that can knock down shots and has some ability to get around screens defensively, he's a unrestricted or he's a restricted free agent then. And we're doing the dance with Austin Reeves all over again. Right? So I think, yes, they will value this more because it presents a real difficult, it presents more difficult negotiation tactics for agents. Now, the antithesis of this is I think there's a non-zero chance. No, uh, so the antithesis of this theoretically could be that even more players try to do what Austin Reeves did, which is to say that Austin Reeves and his representation group could have been selected in the 40s in what was the 2021 NBA draft, that would have been. They told teams they would take the qualifying offer, which is like a non-guaranteed one-year deal, uh, if he was drafted in the 40s by a team that they did not want to go to, and thus kind of forced his way out of the draft. 
that is the leverage that agents have. That is the leverage that teams have. Uh, that is the age or leverage that players have in these circumstances. I think there is a chance that you could see more players try to take that route. Now, because you have these exceptions and because these second round picks, if they hit, are so much more drastically valuable. They drastically out, out exceed the expenditure of what the team is utilizing on them. Uh, we've seen like Rui Achimura is a guy that the Wizards did not want to pay this offseason, it seems. Uh, the Wizards just gave, they, they were not going to have him on the roster, it looks like. And they just got three second round picks from the Lakers. The Lakers just tossed them picks. Thomas Bryant just went for multiple second round picks, right? Teams toss second round picks willy nilly. If you hit on second round picks, the value that you derive from that second round pick, and you have like a, I think I've done the math before. It's like a 15% chance once you get beyond pick 46. The value you derive from these picks is drastically higher than what you're expending on them from an asset perspective. I think that because of that, we will probably see teams just be willing to give these guys that get drafted 46 to 55, maybe not the last few picks, these three-year contracts and say, hey, we're locking you in. We've got you now. You are getting a real salary. You are set moving forward. You're going to get at least one year guaranteed. But if you don't work, we're going to cut you after a year and we're just going to keep the cycle moving over and over again. I also think that this exception could result in more stashes from over in Europe being selected. Uh, could also result in more two ways being selected, right? Like uh, guys that, you know, agree to two ways on draft night uh, end up being picked. So there are a number of things I think that could materially change in the second round, which is always this weird mess of, differing incentives on the agency and player side and on the team side. Uh, it's always difficult to navigate the second round pick. I think I've, I think I wrote it eight years ago. Now it feels like this is not a meritocracy. The second round pick is not a meritocracy. It is the best negotiated circumstance that each team can can come to in order to derive the most value out of that pick. Okay. Uh, let's go with, this might be the last question here. Do the Nets try to acquire a Siakam? I know it might scream mid, uh, but I think I like how Mikhail and Siakam would complement each other if the goal is to be competitive. Sure. Uh, I, I think it's interesting, but this kind of goes back to my point a little while ago. Do they have the best offer for Siakam? I mean, maybe you do a deal where it's like Cam Johnson because they're looking for shooting to surround Scotty Barnes with. And it's like three first round picks. I don't even know if that's the best offer you get for Siakam. So sure, in theory, I, I don't mind that idea. Like, I, I think that's a completely reasonable, rational suggestion for the Nets. I, I'm just a little bit skeptical that that ends up being the best offer that the, uh, that Toronto would end up getting because I think Toronto would be able to have real leverage in that circumstance to get what they want. So, yeah, uh, 
it's hard. If I'm the Nets, I'm like upside hunting in this year's NBA draft with 21 and 22. Like if Leonard Miller got to them, I'd be like, hell yeah, I'm taking him. Uh, I think that he has real upside long-term as a potential shot creator. I think I'm a little bit out on an island with that, uh, which is funny because I did not like Leonard Miller last year as people uh, will certainly come to me and yell at me about. But I think Leonard's really good. I think Leonard is a guy worth investing in. So uh, that, that'd that be an ideal one for me. Uh, Josiah Lin in the YouTube comments brought up uh, Bilal Kulabali. Sure, love it. Go for it. Take the home run swing. Hope that you can really develop that skill level uh, in a real substantial way. Has all the size and tools that you can certainly hope for. Um, yeah, I think all of this makes sense, but this is where we're at. This is where Brooklyn is, and it's not an easy circumstance. Okay. We've gone for an hour and 17 minutes. My goal on these playoff podcasts was something like a 45-minute show. Uh, so we've gone a half an hour long, which is very on brand for me. Thank you all for listening. We will be back probably tomorrow with Adam Spinella. I don't know if we will go quite as late as to get the Denver Timberwolves game involved as well, but I think that we certainly will talk a little bit about the playoffs. We definitely will talk about Cleveland and the Knicks because I feel like I've given that series a bit of a short shrift thus far. Uh, I absolutely love that series unconditionally. Uh, But those last two games tomorrow, Celtics-Hawks, the Hawks won last game because they shot a billion percent from three and the Celtics felt like they were a little bit uh, disengaged defensively, comparatively, let's go with. Um, and then, you know, Denver can knock out the Timberwolves and maybe we'll do another postmortem on the Timberwolves tomorrow night. But Spins will likely be on the show tomorrow night and we will talk through a number of different playoff things. We might even do some NBA draft things depending on uh, what we decide to do. I still haven't talked to him about it yet. We will talk about it then. But until next time, please hit that subscribe button on the YouTube channel. We will have some really good videos up uh, later today with just clipping this show up. Uh, so if you want to just watch the you know Lakers section that we did about their game two adjustment, we're going to be able to do it. If you want to watch the section on Miami doing empty side actions for Jimmy, you're going to be able to watch that as well. Uh, please go rate, review, subscribe, hit the like button on this video so that people get to it a little bit more than what we've seen previously. Uh, Do everything you can to support the show. Hit the subscribe button on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, whatever podcasting platform you use to listen. Okay. Now that my marathon of talking is over. Until next time, we will talk soon. Bye.